This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. I hope you are having a spectacular day. This is episode 50, which is very exciting for me. Uh, Half of 100. That's awesome. Uh, And to celebrate the 50th episode, we're going to go back and uh, check out one of the, you know, probably most underrated historic buildings in the city of Richmond. Uh, One of the few 18th century buildings, not only in the city, but in the the greater Richmond area. Mason's Hall. Uh, Most folks listening are probably saying, Mason's who's a what's it? Uh, Mason's Hall. Uh, It is on right near the corner of 18th and Franklin Street. Big white building. Um, Most people probably notice the cupola more than they actually notice the building as they go by it. Um, but it's a, a wooden building, um, and to talk about it with me is Philip Bonnard. Um, he's the chairman of the Historic Preservation Committee of the Richmond Randolph Lodge Number no. 19 and Mason's Hall. He's done an incredible amount of research. Um, this is a really, really cool conversation. Um, Mason's Hall is, you know, it's a building that most people are unaware of, um, and you'll, as you'll hear... Uh, it's one of the centers of public life in early Richmond. There are a number of famous Americans, not just famous Richmonders, but famous Americans that are um, involved and included in this conversation. Um, the, the building itself is a monument to George Washington, uh, and it's you know, the first legal offices of John Marshall, right? which you can hear tons more about John Marshall from other episodes, and hoping to actually have... Uh, an upcoming episode, another episode about John Marshall, which I'm kind of excited about. Um, But this is a two-parter. This is a two-part conversation. Uh, The first part here uh, focuses on the early days, um, the Masonic influences on early RVA, uh, the the Constitution, and, you know, what what Mason's Hall, what role it had to play. Uh, The next part of the conversation, the next episode, uh, will be posted on the 15th of September. And it's kind of the Civil War and beyond, kind of where it is nowadays. Um, now, Freemasons, um, you know, a lot of the pop culture history, like the, you know, the History Channel wants you to believe the Freemasons are this dark, nasty organization, secret society that controls the world, blah, blah, blah. Maybe they are. I don't know. I'll need to see a little bit more proof than uh, than what they generally offer. Um, but that in mind... I actually started out asking Philip Bonnard um, to describe what it meant to be a Freemason in the 18th century. Well, in the 18th century, men built their their lives around uh, their status in society, their reputations, uh, genteel manners, and Freemasonry represented an organization that. Uh, could pull the fabric of society into one group and and represent not only uh, the ideals of Freemasonry, which is to make good men better, but the politics of society. They were very much business meetings uh, where people met and discussed the local issues, national issues. Uh, today, uh, Freemasonry is just one of a thousand organizations that men can be a part of. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a very different world today. Uh, 
the, the biggest change that's occurred since uh, Mason's Hall was completed was, was that back then uh, national leadership and Freemasonry were practically synonymous. Right. Uh, all of the greatest men in society, Washington, Franklin, Edmund Randolph, uh, were Freemasons. Mm -hmm. uh, when Washington was inaugurated, our first president, uh, every single governor in this country was a Freemason. Wow. All the men but one in his procession party in New York were Freemasons. Uh, the only one being uh, John Adams, and he fully supported Freemasonry. So it was extremely influential. Right. And that's what this building represents mm -hmm. when it was completed. Yeah, because, I mean, it's a, like, we, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but it's a really huge building for an, the 18th century. I mean, we're talking about Mason's Hall. This is the greatest undiscovered historical gem in Richmond. And this isn't just a Richmond city landmark. This is a national landmark. Mm -hmm. This was built uh, with the vision of a founding father, Edmund Randolph. This was built under the, uh, uh, under the direction for construction and fundraising of a young lawyer by the name of John Marshall, where he really got his start, uh, his push forward in his career uh, due to the assistance of Edmund Randolph. Uh, and it was, a, it was a monument to honoring Washington, right. who at that time was, was, he was the greatest symbol of American independence we had, the living embodiment of what we had just achieved, our independence. People were just coming to grips with what to do with this new independence. Mm -hmm. They could finally make lasting decisions and know that they could build on something and it would last. And that had only occurred in the last year and a half when this building was envisioned and, and started. Right. So uh, to, to create a vision for this building, you'd need to have the influence of Edmund Randolph. Mm -hmm. He was clearly the most influential Freemason in Richmond. He was the most influential man in Virginia, second to Washington himself. He was Washington's personal attorney for 10 years. Uh, in 1785, uh, member of the Virginia General Assembly. Uh, he had been the first Attorney General of Virginia since 1776. Uh, just before that, he served as Washington's aide de camp mm -hmm. uh, up in Boston, 1775. And in October, he had to return back to Williamsburg because his uncle, Peyton Randolph, had passed away. So he started building his law practice, and that included Washington as his number one client. Uh, and being the Attorney General of Virginia during the war years, I mean, it meant that he served on the committee uh, in Williamsburg, uh, our first Virginia Constitutional Convention. Mm -hmm. He was elected Attorney General as a 23-year-old man. He's serving on that committee and helping to write the Constitution of Virginia as a 23-year-old man, sitting on that committee with people like James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, uh, and, uh, and his career just took off from there. He, he had the credentials of a man 15 years older than him, and in those days, that's a lot of years of building your career. 
and yet he was in his 20s. Right. So when, when we come to 1784, and now we're past the war, and the, and the world of America wants to honor Washington, our government attempted to do it. Continental Congress met in late 1783 and decided to honor Washington with a great equestrian statue to be placed in the center of our permanent government city. The problem was we didn't have a permanent government city, huh. and they didn't have the money to build it anyway. Mm -hmm. So, as usual, Virginia decided to take the lead. So the, the, the General Assembly of Virginia resolved in July of 1784 to create a monument to Washington in the form of a life-size marble statue. Yeah. And they, they sent notice to Jefferson, who was in France at the time, help us choose the finest sculptor. And he chose Jean-Antoine Houdin. Mm -hmm. And so now Virginia has taken the position of honoring Washington in a permanent manner. Right. Well, Edmund Randolph is it, sitting in that meeting. Which stands in, in under the Jefferson's yeah. Rotunda at it, the Capitol. It right? is. Yeah. And so it was planned for the to-be-built capital of Virginia, mm -hmm. which was also just a vision at that time. And so the same time that Jefferson is envisioning what the capital of Virginia should look like, Randolph is envisioning what Mason's Hall should look like. And literally within the same months first few months of 1785 and when the General Assembly decided to honor Washington with something of a permanent nature the Freemasons were roused because no organization in America uh, cared more about honoring Washington than the Freemasons of which he had joined as a young man in, in 1752 and when the Grand Lodge of Virginia was first envisioned in 1777, the very first question was, who shall be Grand Master? And the immediate answer was General Washington. Mm -hmm. And they offered him the position of Grand Master. And he turned it down because he was a little occupied <laughs> kind of busy. with the Continental Army. But that set the tone. And Freemasonry has been honoring Washington ever since. But this building was their chance to do it back then. When the General Assembly had made that decision, they met three months later and had the, the very first meeting of the Grand Lodge of Virginia in Richmond. And clearly, the number one uh, item on the agenda was a permanent meeting place. Mm -hmm. And the Deputy Grand Master of Masons, who was elected in that meeting, appointed, was Edmund Randolph. Right. So it fell to Randolph, with all his influence, to create that project and it was his vision for what this building should stand for that eventually became reality. So and have you been able to figure out much of what this area looks like? You know I know at that time you're going to have the Adam Craig house which is you know because we're we're at the corner of 18th and Franklin so mm -hmm. the Adam Craig house is only a block away. Um, what's the Poe Museum now is going to be there. Right. Um, and other than that, really, you get John Marshall's house, which is 1790, is on, the only thing in the ballpark, uh, other well, than really, the Capitol building, well, right? Really I mean, the, the environment in, in those years of 1785, mm -hmm. you had the courthouse was 22nd in Maine, mm -hmm. a stone's throw from this building. You had the warehouse on 14th Street where the General Assembly met, Mason's Hall, 
uh, set to be built here in the heart of Shaco Valley. Uh, you didn't have John Marshall's house yet. You didn't right. have any of that. You didn't have the capital yet. Right. So Richmond was centered on this valley, and uh, they had just purchased the land up on the hill for the capital site. Mm-hmm. Uh, the designs were being put together by Jefferson in France, uh, you know, directly associated with a, a building that's in Paris, mm-hmm. almost copied. Right. But what was truly being done that had uh, incredible significance to American history, American history, was what was envisioned for Masons Hall. Because the, the Freemasons in America had, had been in America since uh, the beginning of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time anyone had said let's erect a building strictly for masonic purposes okay and so that gets in because i've heard this uh a number of different ways this is the first building built as a masonic lodge Mm -hmm. in the united states it is it's the very first building built for masonic purposes in north america actually okay Uh, nothing like it had ever been done before and it wasn't just uh a building for one lodge with one room like you you might see this was a statement this was to be the headquarters of the Grand Lodge of Virginia it had to be the statement because the mindset in Richmond was this is the capital of Virginia Virginia was the strongest most economically viable most populated and most wealthy place in America Mm -hmm. so they would typically even refer to the country by referring just to this area where we were. That's how they felt about the strength of this area. And before a place like this is built, where would Freemasons meet? Typically in a a home, uh, any place that was a large enough space, a tavern, someone's living room. Okay. That was common. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and is there any significance of why they picked this specific spot, or did they just happen to be able to buy it? There was a, there was a mason that owned this spot. His name was Gabriel Galt. He was a local tavern owner. And uh, some stories say that he gave the land to the masons for this purpose, and others say he sold it. But he was, he was a member of Freemasonry. Okay. So that's how they, they acquired this spot. They opened negotiations on uh, August 12th, 1785, with Gabriel Galt for this piece of land. Okay. And the interesting thing uh, was in that same week, August 18th, they met, and that meeting had two items on the agenda. They approved the plan for building Mason's Hall, mm-hmm. and then they formed a line of procession, and they went up the hill and laid the cornerstone for the capital. Wow, okay. So the same men laid the cornerstone for the US, for the for the Virginia State Capitol and Mason's Hall. And Mason's Hall being October 18, no, October 12th, uh, a couple of months later, right. They actually laid the cornerstone. And would they have laid the cornerstone for what would have been the temple or would that, the temple on the hill of Jefferson's design or would it have been uh, the intention of the like Georgian-style building? 
that I guess it was originally no, they, they, intended. They laid the cornerstone for Jefferson's design. Okay. Uh, as it was to be built at that time, before it had the wings on it. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, it's, it's same east corner, uh, just like it is here. It's over in the east corner of the building. It's always the east corner. That's it. Okay. Yeah. So, you can rightly call uh, uh, Mason's Hall the cornerstone of Richmond, okay. because the the most famous cornerstones in this whole area were created by the Masons. And right. it all began right here at Mason's Hall. Yeah, I actually saw on one of the websites, it was a list of buildings that, the, that they had laid the first stone for, right. the cornerstone, and it was a pretty healthy <laughs> pretty healthy list. <laughs> well, the Freemasons have been doing that uh, all over the country for a long, long time, uh, going well back into the 18th century. I mean, the Alexandria Washington Lodge up in Alexandria has laid the cornerstone for every major building in Washington, D.C., yeah. beginning with the Capitol in 1793. Mm-hmm. And their trial up there in the collection is considered the most famous free, Freemasonry object in America. It's a small trial that Washington used in the ceremony, and they've used that same trial with the cornerstone laying for the White House, the Smithsonian buildings, um, the Washington Monument, all, all the most famous buildings. And so talk about how you, you were you were telling me before about how the actual building itself is a monument to George Washington and what that describes. Well, and I guess well, first, like, who, who actually does, is there an, a design architect credited with the building or? No. Okay. In those days, you were your own architect. You hired a builder to design something you created yourself. It was highly unusual to actually employ an architect. Mm-hmm. Washington was his own architect at Mount Vernon. And given his, his stature, he influenced a lot of uh, men of society to do the same with their homes. That's what was done here. So Edmund Randolph would have obviously created the vision for what this building was supposed to look like. And what it was supposed to look like was something that did several things. It, it needed to be a monument to Washington, mm-hmm. the greatest Freemason in America, the greatest living symbol of independence in America. To do that architecturally is pretty simple. You need to go to two buildings and uh, that reflected Washington's life. Independence Hall, where his career uh, service to our country began and Mount Vernon, where he retired. And Mount Vernon was almost a symbol of, of uh, temperance. It was When he resigned as commander-in-chief, it was shock, shocking to the whole world because in those days, if you were the leader of a rebellion and you won, you became king. Instead, Washington laid down his sword, picked up his plow, and went home to retirement. And the public couldn't even believe such character existed in one man. So to honor Washington, you, you, you couldn't just grab onto the fact that he was commander-in-chief. You had to grab onto his character. Mm-hmm. And Mount Vernon reflected his character, what he chose over being king. So this building uh, has design elements from top to bottom on the exterior that reflect Independence Hall from the street level up to the roof level, and then from the roof level up, it's all about Mount Vernon. 
And it, when you really study the building from the roof up today, all of the angles, the size of the cupola, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the central pavilion, the pediment, are all related to Mount Vernon in size and shape, angles. The pediment window in, in the central pavilion on the front comes from the same design book, same page that Washington used at Mount Vernon for his pediment window. That's awesome. The cupola has the same dimensions as Mount Vernon. They are the only two existing 18th century wooden cupolas left in Virginia today. Huh. And Washington saw his cupola as his crowning achievement for his building. I mean, architecturally, it was meant to break up a long building, which is what Mount Vernon was, but it was also the crown. And the same thought was put here. Mm-hmm. When Mason's Hall was finished, it was 20 feet taller than anything in the valley, and you would have been able to see it from everywhere. And what we've learned from our studies is that these old uh, louver shutters that you see all over the building today were actually glass windows that were beautiful with the inter- interlacing tracery window designs. So all eight windows on the cupola had those designs. Wow. And if you put a lantern inside, that would have just been striking from all points of Richmond. Sure. The front of the building, we know from drawings we located at the, at the Library of Virginia, uh, was two beautiful Palladian windows of the same design as the South Bell Tower of Independence Hall the great Palladian window you see there. Now, every man who was a member of Continental Congress, like Edmund Randolph, would have remembered this, the, what that window looked like from the inside and the outside. Sure. Two great, you know, a great uh, three-part Palladian window motif with the interlacing tracery window designs in the arch above. Well, that's exactly what we discovered used to be on the front of Mason's Hall. Uh, on the first floor, the doorway went through the middle of it, and on the second floor, it was the full window. It must have just been incredible um, in December of 1787 when the public really witnessed what this building was supposed to look like. Yeah. So that was the vision for what it was supposed to be architecturally. Mm-hmm. And then it represented the power of Freemasonry. Right. In those days, it was synonymous. Uh, national leadership and Freemasonry were just synonymous. Yeah. It represented the strength and influence of Edmund Randolph, who had just come back from Philadelphia, where, as governor of Virginia, he proposed the Constitution. He also wrote the first draft in the Committee of Detail. His influence was undeniable. Sure. And he had just come back to Richmond from Philadelphia, and the public was discovering that we have a new Constitution to debate. And that all began right here at Mason's Hall. Right. And um, that kind of leads into, I guess, uh, uh, you had already told me about as well downstairs um, about John Marshall and how and his his kind of influence here, um, which was one of the things on Facebook, uh, Josh Wilberger, which I'm going to actually say thank you to him because he actually helped me try and put this together and kept my interest as I was okay. <laughs> trying to sort this out. But um uh, I guess he was asking more about his role, uh, John Marshall's role um, as Grand Master, um, and but I guess uh, t- 
I think it's I know he would be interested. I am about what you were saying about him actually getting his law start here. Yeah, the real the real important story for John Marshall here at Mason's Hall is his relationship to Edmund Randolph. Mm -hmm. The public has this completely backwards in their thinking today. They remember the great John Marshall who served as our uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for 34 years. Uh, Clearly when he died in 1835 the most influential man in Richmond and we see monuments to him everywhere. And if you ask the public to rank him in relation to Edmund Randolph today on the streets, they, they would put John Marshall 10 feet above Edmund Randolph. And yet it's totally opposite. Well, and, and I think first you're going to have to ask a lot because most people don't even know who Edmund Randolph is. That's right. <laughs> and, and here we're talking about a founding father. Yeah. Edmund Randolph, when, when, Ed, when this project began in 1785, Edmund Randolph uh, was uh, attorney general, 10 years running, Washington's lawyer for 10 years running. He was on his way to becoming governor. He was on his way to becoming Grand Master of Masons. And right in the middle of the construction phase for this building in October of 1786, he was in fact elected governor and within a week elected Grand Master of Masons. So now he holds the top positions in every part of society in those two positions. And he had a young law student by the name of John Marshall. Mm-hmm. John Marshall had just arrived in Richmond in, in, uh, just after the Revolutionary War, and he was beginning to make his way. Fortunately for us, he had become a Freemason during the Revolutionary War, so he was active with the Freemasons in the same lodge here as Edmund Randolph. They formed a, 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 a very close bond John Marshall became his law student, his junior law partner, and became uh, in charge of construction and fundraising for Mason's Hall. So he was Edmund Randolph's man on the ground. Edmund Randolph was off serving our country in Philadelphia, uh, in in the larger political positions. John Marshall was his man stationary here to see the construction of Mason's Hall. And then in October of 1786, Edmund Randolph is elected governor of Virginia, and by law, he is required to give up his private law practice because as an executive of the state, you're not allowed to practice before the bar. Mm -hmm. So who does he give it to? He gives it to John Marshall so that everything stays right here, and Mason's Hall is under construction. It's still a one-story building, and John Marshall has a desk down on the basement level, and, and quite literally, Edmund Randolph's law practice is is still being run from Mason's Hall. And, of course, the number one client in the law practice is George Washington. So it allowed John Marshall to form a relationship with Washington. If you fast forward to 1794, 1795, now you have Edmund Randolph, who is serving in Washington's cabinet, in Philadelphia as the first Attorney General of the United States. Thomas Jefferson resigns in a dispute with Alexander Hamilton. And so now the position of Secretary of State is left open 
-hmm. Washington, always the man to go with his gut and trust. Who do I trust? He chooses Edmund Randolph. Mm -hmm. Who does Edmund Randolph refer to Washington to take his position as Attorney General? John Marshall. Mm -hmm. That all began with what happened in 1786 right here at Mason's Hall. Right. Now, John Marshall had to, to decline the office due to his other obligations, but that's where that began. And at that time, ironically, John Marshall is sitting in Mason's Hall as the Grand Master of Masons in Virginia. So while Edmund Randolph and John Marshall were Grand Master of Masons, Washington offered each one the position of Attorney General of the United States. Wow. From the room we're sitting in. Sure. So uh, sitting right there. Right. So it's pretty ironic what actually eventually occurred for John Marshall as a result of his early days here at Mason's Hall when it was under construction and his relationship with Edmund Randolph. It really propelled him forward to these later appointments. And of course, he was, he was eventually appointed Secretary of State for a few months under John Adams, and then he was appointed Chief Justice just before John Adams' term ended. Right. And that's what led to his tenure of 34 years. Sure. And and that's um, I kind of skipped ahead. Maybe I maybe I didn't. But now I'm skipping back. Um, but the actual building, right? The construction. So we were talking about Peyton Randolph getting it together. It's actually financed uh, through lottery. You mean Edmund Randolph? Edmund Randolph. Excuse yeah. me. Excuse me. Um, the uh, right. So uh, I think that's even a weird thing to well, people in those, nowadays. In those days, to get the city council to agree to a lottery, you had to have a lot of political influence. Right. And okay. So this is. Basically, city uh, is it city approved, well, or is it, it the was, city uh, actually run this thing? In, in those days, uh, the city council met right here in Chaco Bottom, mm -hmm. a couple blocks away, uh, and they approved the lottery, which gave it the integrity it needed for people to invest with it, such as you would have today with the public lottery. Okay. Uh, you're not going to see something like that run out of someone's home. It's got to be, you know, a state-approved affair. Right. Well, in those days, to get a lottery to to be popular and trusted, you needed the city council. They got well, I guess that. It's money. illegal nowadays, right? I mean, that was right. Like, we couldn't just set up a, you know. It was even frowned upon back then because okay. because we lived at a time in 1785 where there was uh, the economy was in terrible shape. Wow. Uh, but the government had no money to even pay its war debts. Yes. Yeah, so, so who's organizing this lottery? So what happened was they, uh, John Marshall, who was the recorder for the Hustings Court, uh, was already a part of the city council structure. So right. he and a few of the other Masons went there and got the uh, lottery approved. They they were required by city council to form a committee mm -hmm. to uh, give give credibility to the lottery and they but just for a second I want to stop you so explain what uh, what's the difference between a regular court and the Hustings court one is a one is the high level and one is the circuit court the Hustings court is your circuit court okay so it's that's a like a level. local like basically like the like if if you get so your supreme court and then your your circuit court is your Hustings court so it's like the Richmond city court then or well, this was the capital of Virginia. So the Hustings Court would have been for the whole state? I actually, it was your traveling circuit court. It okay. moved around. 
okay, in those right. days. So it was the lower level court. So, but it's a state level court that would have traveled. That would have been so like a state judge, right? Not like a local judge, right? Right. Okay. All right. And and in those days, they combined the two. I mean, you'd had you had them of all levels meeting in the same place. Maybe that's why it's been so confusing when it's, I've tried to look it up. It's confusing because you only had one courthouse in this whole area. Right. Right over on 22nd and Main. Right. So. Uh, so event- sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Eventually, they, uh, everybody grew frustrated with the lottery. It wasn't raising the money it was supposed to raise, and it raised about a third of what it needed to raise. They wanted 1,500 pounds. It raised 500. Eventually, the city council got frustrated with the whole affair and actually uh, forced the lodge itself to take over running the lottery. Okay. And and that was a a negative uh, situation because it showed that the public was questioning the integrity of the lottery. Yeah. So not only did they ask the, the lodge to take it over, they asked them to post a bond, a big number bond, like 20,000 pounds to support it and even though they did that it still only raised a third of what they needed at the time so this building was only one story for the first year and a half okay. until they raised more money in in uh after april of 1787 right and so there was some sort of thing i saw online where it was talking about um it was the construction company maybe um but it was like $1,000 that they owed this person. There was apparently some kind of lawsuit mm-hmm. like in the middle of... What was that all about? Well, one of the building contractors by the name of William Booker uh-huh. uh, filed a complaint in the court uh, because he hadn't been paid. And that, that and, and, a, and another uh, Freemasonry, uh, Freemason actually stepped up and paid the bill so that that was done. But it showed that when this building was finished... There were some huge cost overruns. Mm-hmm. They they spent way out of budget, and they owed a lot of contractors for years. Yeah, and it put tremendous pressure on both of the lodges that owned the building for many years, and it 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 caused all kinds of consternation amongst the membership. Uh, raising money was constantly needed to pay those bills. Mm-hmm. So this was a this was a classic example of a, of a vision that was ended up so much more costly than available funds. Yeah. And the, um, uh, how long does it actually sit with just one floor, which is just the from, basement floor? Yeah, from, uh, from the fall of 1785, when they began construction, to... April of 1787, it was still one story. Wow. And then, amazingly, within an eight-month period in 1787, they completed the uh, first and second floor all the way up to the cupola. So by December 10th of that year, the full elevation existed for the public to see. Okay. That's a tremendous feat in building in pure woodwork in an eight-month period. Right. And it shows to this day. It's the reason that Mason's Hall is still standing. The quality of that craftsmanship is is incredible. Right. And I guess you were saying that that lack of funds is why Masons who build out of brick have a wooden 
lodge. Well, masons masons build lodge buildings out of any available material, uh, but for a building to be important in those days, you envisioned it to be brick. Right. And this was envisioned to be three stories of brick with a large English basement level and two stories above it. But that's far more costly than wood. Right. And so in 1787, with the limited funds they had, they they elected to build it in wood. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what you have. And there was something that was on the website that on, uh, that I found on I actually found it on a few different places online. That's probably all sourced back to one thing: the beauty of the internet, which is. <laughs> um, but it was something about how the building is made of a cube. Um, well, it's, it's an old myth that this building is a perfect cube. Okay. That, I believe, that was created by Freemasons to, that, that see a symbolism in a perfect cube. Uh, okay. To take a rough stone and to carve it into a perfect-sided stone is a great feat of okay. masonry. If you look at this building from the outside and you're not looking carefully, it can appear to be cubic. Okay. But it's actually 51 feet by 47 feet. And depending on where you measure it from to the top, um, it's, it's a little taller, more like 58 feet to the cupola level. So it depends on where you're measuring from. Okay. But it is not an exact cube, but it certainly can lend itself to looking at that, you know, like that from a distance. Pretty yeah. dang close. Yeah. Um, and so is this is... You know, uh, it, very early on, this is going to be somewhat like a town hall, almost, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, uh, I mean, I guess first first question: How often are Masons meeting here at that time? Oh, I mean, is this a daily thing? Pretty, pretty month? well. The the lodge is uh, the more active a lodge is, the more monthly meetings it typically has, and in those days. The lodge was extremely active because it was the center of social activity, of business activity, and of charitable activity okay. right here in the Valley of Richmond for the whole city, because this was the whole city. Uh, so you would have expected uh, several meetings a month for each of the lodges that owned Mason's Hall, and you had Richmond number 10 and Richmond Randolph number 19. And one would meet here Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and one would be Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Right. And and then if there were other lodges that came and needed to use Mason's Hall because because their location burned, and that was common in the early 19th century, then you would have other lodges using Mason's Hall as well. Right. And then you had the Grand Lodge uh, using it uh, uh, at least twice a year. Mm-hmm. You then, from 1792 onward, you had the Richmond uh, Royal Arch Number 3 meeting on the first floor, mm-hmm. and the Grand Chapter of, of their organization also met here. And I think the highest number of organizations at any given time was just before the Civil War. You had 10 different Masonic organizations using the building. Wow. Uh, number 36, Number 53, those were the, the numbers for the lodges, the two grand lodges. It was, it was a busy place. Yeah. Um, and so even going, going back, it's because it's dances. 
like yeah, stuff when, like that. Just yeah, random, I mean, like frivolous kind of like just party. When Mason's Hall was first opened, was when it was completed in December of 1787, it was the most popular place in town. Okay. Uh, social activities on the first floor or the basement level were balls, plays. They had a, a stage for acting. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe's mother performed uh, in Mason's Hall just prior to her death. She was an actress. Uh, I've even read that there was some kind of a high wire act that occurred down somewhere in connection with Mason's Hall. It was literally the social place in Richmond. Right. Uh, it was also a temporary place for the Hustings Court when they needed space. And then, of course, you had all the Masonic activities. Mm -hmm. So. Um, that dispels the myth that the Masons wanted to keep everybody out yeah. and keep the place for themselves. Nothing could be further from the truth. They needed to raise all the money they could, so they rented the basement for everything. Uh, what they didn't like to do was rent to somebody who wanted to occupy it permanently. Uh, yeah. And they had a lot of offers medical doctor's offices and different things and they always turned them down because they, they wanted the space to be a rotating space mm -hmm. they also wanted to use it for their meals mm -hmm. in association with their lodge meetings right. so you know the tables and chairs could move around and, and make it very flexible mm -hmm. so and i guess it became a gathering place at the um uh during the writing of the constitution right and it becomes i guess the, the citizens of Richmond come to you discuss or, or yeah, what mean, actually happens there? Well, you're talking about the debates that ensued after the Constitution was signed in Philadelphia. Okay. So the public didn't know what the meeting was for in Philadelphia, so that was secret. Mm -hmm. Edmund Randolph was the leader uh, of the movement for the Constitution. Uh, of course, he's representing a contingent that includes James Madison uh, who is called the father of the Constitution today, but ironically, it was Edmund Randolph that stood and proposed the Constitution in his own words. Madison had only uh, given him an outline to use. He wrote the words to that outline. And that's May 29th, 1787. It was the first time in our history someone stood and proposed a Constitution for our government. And then he was named to the Committee of Detail, which was charged with writing the first draft. Mm -hmm. And it was Edmund Randolph who wrote the first draft for the Committee of Detail, which means it's, it's a fact. You can say that Edmund Randolph wrote the first draft of the Constitution. It also included instructions for how the committee should lay the Constitution out, mm -hmm. the way we have it with the preamble, and, and the, the various parts and the way they're laid out, all that was in Edmund Randolph's instructions. So it's really ironic that uh, at the end of that whole session, Edmund Randolph refuses to sign the Constitution. Mm -hmm. He did so because he felt he had the influence all by himself to actually force a second constitutional convention to fix a few of the problems he, he disliked with that final draft. And he stood on those principles. And one of the things he wanted to see in the final draft was the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. And if he hadn't have stood on his principles and 
refused to sign, George Mason would not have had the political power in Richmond to get the Bill of Rights into the Constitution like it happened. Right. So you end up with, today, George Mason is called the father of the Bill of Rights, but it was only through Edmund Randolph's influence he accomplished that. Right. And you have James Madison referred to as the father of the Constitution, but it was only through Edmund Randolph's proposal of the Constitution the way he did and his, and his writing of the first draft in committee that that actually, that all of Madison's ideas came to fruition. Mm-hmm. So both of them owe their titles to Edmund Randolph. And so, uh, but what is, is it, is, are these delegates that are discussing the, the yes, here, so or are these citizens? Rhett, no, they were appointed delegates, okay. and the delegates from Virginia were George Washington, Edmund Randolph, George Witts, George Mason, James Madison, and there were two others that that's, yeah, that's, that's, I'm uh, having a difficulty remembering. That's impressive that you came just all the you know off the top of your head. <laughs> there are. For those listening at home, he has no notes. He <laughs> he just pulled all those out of the yeah. It's, uh, the, it's uh, like trying to name all the dwarves. Like you always you always miss one. <laughs> uh, it'll come to me. Yeah, but, but uh, Edmund Randolph uh, led that contingent. Right. And it was it's important for people to understand that. Uh, it was Edmund Randolph that convinced Washington to come out of retirement and go to Philadelphia. Right. But, but when they're and, meeting here, and when though... They, when they came back here, yeah. after they signed the Constitution... So this is, this this is, is post-ratification? This is, no, this is pre-ratification, pre-ratification. Okay. but post-signing of the Constitution. Okay, all right. All right. So now we're, we're talking about October of 1787. Edmund Randolph arrives back in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to know why did the governor refuse to sign when he was such a proponent. And, of course, then the, then the conversations and debates began. Mm-hmm. And they began informally. And they would have certainly started right here at Mason's Hall, which was the home of the Freemasons, Edmund Randolph's building, his greatest accomplishment. It was just being completed. It was the finest building in the in the city for meetings, so certainly it would have been right here. Mm-hmm. And Edmund Randolph would have to explain to people the principles he used in, de- in deciding why he refused to sign it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that he wasn't a proponent of it, of the Constitution. He just wanted it to be a better final draft. And of course, between the time he arrived here at Mason's Hall in October of 1787 and the ratification convention in June of 1788 up on the hill, Edmund Randolph had actually flipped to being a supporter of ratification because he was never completely against it. He was just trying to get those additional items mm-hmm. like the Bill of Rights, and he wanted a three-party executive branch, not a single. And the reason was simple. No one knew more than Edmund Randolph that George Washington didn't want the job. And yet, everybody knew if it was a single executive, it was going to be Washington. Mm-hmm. He was supporting Washington. Ben Franklin supported it as well. Ben Franklin, a Freemason, and, and, and the other most influential man in the Constitutional Convention, he did sign it. But he said when he was doing so, this is not a perfect document. Right. But we need to proceed with this. So you had really a, a, you had a three-part system of power going on there. You had Washington sitting in the chair as the president of the convention, trying to remain neutral. You had 
You had Franklin admitting it was a flawed document, but signing it anyway. And then you had the young firebrand with all the influence, Edmund Randolph, raising his arm saying, I'm refusing. Yet everybody knew he started the process with his proposal. Right. So it was quite an interesting situation. And you're talking about the influence of Freemasonry on American history right there. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and uh, the... For some reason, I just because uh, I know Patrick Henry was also adamantly against. Was he a Freemason? No, no. Okay, but he was the leader of the uh, movement against signing. Right, mm-hmm. and uh, he almost won. Right. If it wasn't for Edmund Randolph switching his allegiance to the people like Madison, who were for the Constitution, they would not have garnered the additional five votes they needed. So it passed by a total of 10 votes. Had it swayed by five votes, it would not have been ratified. Mm -hmm. Edmund Randolph's philosophy was simple. He knew that eight states had already approved it. And he knew that it was fully approved on a government-wide level with nine states. Mm -hmm. He didn't want Virginia left out. So he said, this has now come down to the simple matter of, is Virginia to be a part of this uh, constitution or not. Right. And I fully support that Virginia is a part of this constitution. Sure. And we ended up being the 10th state because another state beat us by a couple of days. Mm-hmm. But that's really what changed the course of the ratifying convention. All right, that's it. That's what happened. Uh, and I do want to thank Philip Honored for his time. Uh, I will actually point out that thank you extra to Philip Bonnard. I did have some technical issues when I was actually starting this episode. Um, so thanks for, for putting up with it and being patient. And also thanks to Josh Wilberger. He actually kept me um, uh, focused on getting this episode done after uh, having a little bit of trouble actually getting in touch with some some folks. Um, but he actually helped to get me in the right direction. Um, but, uh, but all right. I mean, again, that's what happened. And the next episode is going to pick up the convo there. And uh, it's going to pick up again around the, the Civil War times. Uh, but they do actually have uh, open houses occasionally there. Um, it's well worth your time if you can get a tour of the building. It's fantastic. Um, keep an eye out for that. And it is a, I mean, it's a pretty powerful building to just to, to be in there, how many stories it holds and the amount of amazing folks that have, have passed those doors. But, uh, but let me know what you think about this episode on Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, Twitter, at History Replays. Or Jeff Major, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R, at historyreplaystoday.org. Uh, as always, let me know what you think. I'm always interested, and, um, and make it a great day.